beyond anything else, we find our truest sense of self when we worship God and experience His presence. Nothing is more central to our lives than this. Not our spouses, not our children, not our possessions, not our politics, not our pleasures. Hello and welcome. My name is Nicholas. I'm the creative pastor here at Fountain Springs. I want to pause for a minute to welcome uh, those joining us online or downtown or at our east location. If you're watching on TV, we're so glad that you're with us. Um, this is the third week of a seven-week conversation about the types of behaviors and postures that keep us anchored in our faith. In life, we are prone to drift at times from the things that matter most. And these spiritual anchors, we sometimes call them spiritual disciplines, they work to keep us tethered to the things that are most important. They help keep us fixed where God wants us to be, where we can live out our purpose. But what is our purpose? Well, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a book written in 1647, and forgive like the antiquated language here a little bit, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a central document in church doctrine, begins like this with the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the spiritual discipline of worship allows us to do both to glorify God and to worship him forever. I'm sorry, to enjoy him forever. But when we talk about worship, there are two types of worship that we're almost always referring to. And the first I would just call lifestyle worship. This is the kind of worship that can happen anywhere and it happens in anything that we do. You might hear people say things like, everything that you do is an act of worship. We talk often in our services about how giving is an act of worship. And this is true in that sort of 1 Corinthians 10 kind of do everything for the glory of God sort of way. In that sense, everything that we do is worship. Our lifestyles are worship. But then there's a more specific kind of worship. And we'll call this, for lack of a better word, congregational worship, church worship. This is the kind of worship that happens when the people of God gather together in the place of God and experience the presence of God. Church worship, congregational worship is found in the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray when we gather together in rooms like this and we read the Bible and we seek to understand what it means on a deeper level. So regarding the first, lifestyle worship, yes, our entire life is worship, and worship can happen anywhere. You can worship on the top of a mountain or sitting in the woods waiting for an elk or in your yoga class or while you're on a hike or whatever you might do to worship. But regarding the second, the Bible is very specific about a format that the people of God are supposed to observe when they come together in communal worship, in church worship. And that's what I want to talk about today. And a big, big part of that involves music and singing. It involves the arts. God wants us to use music in our services when we gather together to lift up his name. In the, in the book of Psalms, which is maybe like the longest book of the Bible, 
the highest number of chapters in the Bible. It's a collection of songs to the Lord. And in Psalm 95, we, we find these specific instructions about worship. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with a song of thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him in songs with instruments. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, sometimes I'm on this stage and I have an instrument in front of me and I play a role in sometimes leading the songs as Psalm 95 just instructed us, right? And sometimes when I'm up here, I have uh, a very unique view of all of you out there and I get to see your faces in the middle of songs and some of you are very responsive and expressive, and it's very clear that you enjoy what Psalm 95 commands, singing. But others of you, you look like you wish you, would be, you could be anywhere else, but sitting in the middle of this singing. And I think that's peculiar. I think that's interesting. Some of you are engaged, but others of you don't seem to be as much. And can I just say this on big numbers? On big numbers, women are much more engaged, expressive, responsive, and participatory, especially in the arts and singing and music than men. That's just true, unfortunately. I think in some ways women are leading the way on this. And it may mean that we need to reconsider what we consider masculine behavior, because I think that's some of what's at the root of this. It hasn't always been considered masculine to sing in churches. Singing in general, maybe when other people are around, isn't always considered masculine. And I think we might need to reconsider what that word means, and not in any sort of toxic masculinity cultural expression. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I think that's a political tool and a dishonest one at that. But I do think we should examine what we mean when we say that behaviors are masculine or feminine. In her book, um, My Brother's Keeper, the author Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen, author and professor, she tells of an of a experiment she got to observe year after year over the course of a couple decades. At the university where she taught, she had a colleague. And on the first day of classes, that colleague would gather the students together and on a giant chalkboard at some point, and then eventually I'm sure it became a dry erase board, that professor would list out a number of different character traits, positive character traits. And sprinkled in those traits would be the fruits of the Spirit. You know them. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They'd be sprinkled among these others. And then the professor would ask their students, now do you consider the trait go through them one by one. Do you consider this trait masculine or feminine? And the results were staggering. Every year, regardless of gender or ethnic background, the answers were the same. With every fruit of the Spirit, the students identified them as feminine qualities. Which sort of begs the question, what are masculine qualities? Because these are the kind of attributes that Paul says 
we will exhibit if the Spirit of God is living inside of us. So what does it look like then to be masculine and exhibit the Spirit of God? One of the reasons I think we don't express music in church is because we feel like there's nothing manly about it. There's nothing masculine about it. But it's not just men who don't sing in church or who don't participate. I saw a few of you women smile. There's something inside of us, I think, here's what I've heard a lot over the years. Here's what I've heard a lot over the years. I've heard this. I just don't connect to God through music. I know people who show up at church 20 minutes late just so they don't have to skip the worship, right? We tricked you today. That's kind of the point of me being up here eight minutes into the service. But I know people who say, I just don't connect to God through music. I just, I'm not a singer. I'm not a musical person. You know, music's just not in me. I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, people say, right? I'm just not musical. And maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. But let me show you something that I think is truly fascinating. Watch this video real quick here. Talking about expectations. Expectations. What? Ba, ba. interesting to me about that is regardless of where I am anywhere every audience gets that but it doesn't it, matter you know that's just 
you know, the pentatonic scale for some reason. If you're looking for a job in neuroscience, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That was not an audience of musicians and singers. Of course, Bobby McFerrin, right, is an incredibly gifted musician. But the people in that room were scientists, mathematicians, surgeons, physicists. And yet there was something hardwired into them that was able to sing the pentatonic scale. In other words, music is not a software feature. It's a hardware feature. It's wired into who we are. Do you see where I'm going with this? I lob this one in there slow enough for you. They're not musicians, and some of us aren't musicians. And yet, music is hardwired into us as well. Individually, God has created us as the kind of beings who sing, and we just sort of know it. It's built into who we are. So when we say something like, I'm not musical, I'm just not sure that that's true. But let's take it a step further, beyond the individual. Did you know that the science of synchrony tells us that when a group of people come together in a room like this, or in a concert hall, when music starts playing, synchrony tells us that in just a couple minutes, our biology takes over. And whenever you have a bass line or a drum beat, within just a couple minutes, doom, 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 our hearts actually start beating in one collective heartbeat. Isn't that crazy? In just a couple minutes, when we gather in a room and we sing, not only is there something happening individually, there's something hardwired into us, but com communally, collectively, we're actually being pulled together as one body, as one unit. And so sometimes it feels like during worship, there's more happening than just like music and notes and lights and haze. It's because there is. At least there, there wants to be. On a deeper spiritual level, there is something that has the potential to happen that binds us together. So individually, we're hardwired for worship music, for the songs of the church. And then collectively, we're actually brought together when the people of God sings the songs of God. But even more than that, in my office, I have a book I read about five years ago called How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Waldman. And they studied the connection between worship music and neuroscience. Kind of the only way that you do this is you look at thousands and thousands of brain scans and you try to identify different parts of the brain that light up or activate after a certain behavior. And so in this case, the behavior was when a person sang a song or prayed a prayer to a loving God, what happens in our brains? What they found was your brain actually increases its neuroplasticity, which is like your brain's ability to grow and to change and to learn. Like when you sing songs to a loving God, your brain actually begins to repair damaged parts of itself. When you pray prayers to a loving God, your brain actually begins to heal itself. You see how this works? Individually, it's built into us. Collectively, it's pulling us together. And when we participate it, it's actually repairing us from the inside out. Think about the implications for like learning disabilities or bipolar disorder or anger management or addiction. What if music, what if worship music could actually help heal trauma in our lives? That's what the research suggests. 
that all of these mechanisms are built into the gift that God gives us when he commands us to sing. The power and the presence of God wants to move through us when we sing. It wants to come out in our worship gatherings. And it used to. More than it does these days in a lot of churches. A couple months ago, I was listening to this um, old holiness sermon, uh, the audio of this old holiness sermon. I have to confess something to you. And this is not self-deprecation. This is a true, true statement. I have the most boring entertainment preferences of anybody that I know. That is absolutely true. I have the most boring. My poor wife has to watch some of the most boring like YouTube documentaries by people who are not filmmakers. They're just walking around with the camera. I have very boring um, entertainment preferences. But anyway, I'm listening to this old holiness sermon by a preacher named S.I. Emery. And if you don't know uh, about the, the um, holiness church, it was one of the more conservative churches uh, over the last hundred years, right? They, these were not like the Shakers and the Quakers. They weren't dancing around with snakes uh, around their neck. You know, they, they were the more conservative crowd. So anyway, I'm, I'm listening to this sermon and S.I. Emery is preaching about the Ark of the Covenant and when it returns to Jerusalem in the book of 1 Samuel. And he's talking about the story in 1 Samuel and he's drawing parallels to Psalm 24 and Psalm 15, which are, I, we believe, David's psalms that he wrote, uh, songs to sing when this event was taking place. And he's going back and forth. And uh, as, as he speaks, you know, he's getting louder and his intensity is clearly like increasing. His volume is increasing as he's preaching. It's, it's an absolute masterpiece of a sermon. I'd give anything one day in my life to be able to preach a sermon like this guy can. And but it's, it, you know, it's swelling in intensity, and the people are coming with him. So as the sermon goes on, you hear more like peripheral noise and shouting and exclamation and screaming. And he begins just, you know, he's talking about, and again, this is the conservative crowd, right? And he's talking about worship, and he's talking about singing the songs in the temple. And the people are growing louder, and he's getting louder. And the word of God is alive, and the room is alive, and the, 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 the spirit of God is moving in that place. And then the sermon ends. And the people just kind of take over the service. I'd play the whole thing for you if I could, if I had time this morning. But I want to at least let you hear like two minutes of it. I want you to hear the end of it. And then I want you to notice what happens after the sermon ends. Okay? So listen to this. You want to read it, you can read the 15th Psalm. But I tell you, God wants to dwell among his people. He wants to be our crown and our glory. And his brother has said, I know what it means to wade through deep valleys. I know what it is to walk in a prolonged way without any seeming sense of his presence. I understand that, but if I have to keep going that way too long, I get deeply disturbed. I want to hear from heaven. I want to know that God is still my God. And he made me some promise. He said, if you love me, if a man loved me, he shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And brother, those manifestations are the things that keep me running. I run anyhow by faith, but once in a while I want to get a touch 
I want God to touch my heart to let me know that he is still my father, that he loves me, and I still love him. that for the first time, I was in my garage, and I was just overwhelmed. It moved me to tears, and I thought, I want to be in that room. Did you notice that moment after the sermon had ended? No instruments, just the room just erupted in spontaneous worship. In fact, you can hear the moment when they get a microphone in front of the guy who's the loudest and turn it on, right? Did you hear that moment? The church just broke out singing. We're marching to Zion. Why don't we sing like that anymore? Why does it feel like we've taken maybe a step back with these things? I have a lot of favorite um, G.K. Chesterton quotes, but top three for me for sure is this. If a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. Let me read it again. If a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. What does Chesterton mean? He doesn't mean we should do things poorly, right? He doesn't mean if you're going to do it, do it badly. Do your worst, you know. Really stink it up if you can. No, what he means is the most important things in the world are worth doing even when you're not good at them. Because what does it mean to be good at them, right? Even when you don't look cool, even when it's not trendy, the most important things in the world are worth doing even if you do it poorly. That's a lesson I want to teach my children. And this is the case with worship music, especially with worship in the church. It's not about performance. It's about participation. We're supposed to participate in worship. And when we do, there is like this trove of incredibly powerful things that begin to happen. There's like this mechanism that's set into motion. 
brings something out of us, brings us together, puts us back together on the inside. Singing songs to God is infinitely more important than singing songs goodly, right? And I'm bringing all of this up today because I think this can be a watershed moment in the worship of this church. In what it looks like when we sing songs at Fountain Springs, I think this can be one of those this changes everything kind of moments. Where it could forever change the way that we worship in these rooms. Here at East, downtown, if you're watching, even at home. How is the Spirit moving through you when you sing? Now some of you are natural, bold worshipers already. And we need you to keep doing what you're doing. We need you to be wind in the room, right? Not weather vanes. Don't tell us where the wind is blowing. Make it blow. But some of us are holding back. So I want to give you just one. What we're going to do is we're going to bring the band back up here, okay? band's going to come up right now. And we're going to, we flipped our service around so that we'd have a bulk of time at the end of our service to sing songs together to kind of put like this, this concept into practice, right? But what I want you to do is... I want to give you one practical suggestion, one practical application, okay? This is easy and everyone can do this. Whenever, whenever we sing about the resurrection in this church, whenever we sing about the resurrection, we shout, okay? Anytime we sing a song that says anything about Jesus being risen from the grave, about an empty tomb, a stone being rolled away. Whenever we sing about the resurrection, we shout because Paul says it's the foundation of everything that we believe. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. So one simple way that we can bring our rooms alive is when we sing words about the resurrection, we scream and we shout. Glory to God. Come on. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Anything. You don't even have to say words. You can just make screaming sounds. I don't care. Step in the right direction. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Right? So stand up with me. I'm going to pray. We're going to spend some time in worship. And I'm going to ask you to be a little more responsive. Okay? Let's bring this room alive. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for the gift of singing and of songs and of the arts in our church service. God, would you give us the courage and the boldness to participate? Help us move our body. If we're comfortable doing that, clap our hands, sing with our voices and participate because you want to do something powerful in us and through us, through your songs. So would you move in this place, God? Bring this room to life from this, this day forward. May our songs be different. We love you. We praise you in your precious and holy name. Amen.